So did you catch the news on Friday? It was a hysterical scene. As the camera panned the crowd, people were pushing and shoving to make their way to the very front. It's not like individuals were running away from terrorists. It's not like people were just storming a field after a last-second football victory. No, it was shoppers marking the beginning of the Christmas season. And as I saw it, I thought to myself, Christmas, tis the season to covet. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Today we come to the 10th and final sermon in our series entitled First and Ten, A Study of the Ten Commandments. So once again, I ask for you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read verse 17 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, let me read verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. At first glance, you may come across the 10th commandment and you think to yourself, now this one lacks a little pizzazz. Some have concluded that God had nine pretty good ones and he threw in this 10th one just to round out the top 10. I realize that when you come to the 10th commandment, it might sound a little bit confusing. It, it may sound a little bit hard to understand. She had been teaching Sunday school for some 15 years. For those 15 years, she had been teaching second graders. And on this given Sunday, Miss Franklin asked her class, now do you remember us talking about the Ten Commandments? We've been walking through them week by week, one by one. And just last week, we came across the Tenth Commandment. Do you remember the Tenth Commandment? Can anybody recite it for me? And Derek shot his hand into the air. He had so much confidence. He was brimming with enthusiasm. She gave him the floor, and he simply said, this is the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not uncover thy neighbor's wife. <laughs> Close, but not exactly. When you and I come to this Tenth Commandment, I think that God is saving the best for last. I believe that he puts together two glorified bookends around these ten words, these ten statements, these ten commandments. In the first commandment, the Lord said, you shall have no gods before me. In this last commandment, he says, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And God knows that it is easy for us to make our goods into our gods. And it's even easier for us to make our neighbor's goods into our gods. So here he comes to this 10th commandment, and it is a commandment that speaks about attitude even before it develops into action. It's a commandment that gets to the heart of the problem because the problem that we have is the problem of our heart. This is a commandment that speaks to desire before we ever get to the deed that's done. I told you before that these 10 commandments really show us uh, what Jesus said were the greatest two commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. When you and I walk through the Ten Commandments, we see how to love God with all the stuff that's inside of us. For the first four commandments tell us how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, for we have no other gods before him or besides him. We do not make an idol out of anything. 
we do not misuse his name and we remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. When you come to the second half of the Decalogue, the Lord is giving us the ways in which we love neighbor as self. We love our neighbor, and our neighbor is anybody that we interact with. It has nothing to do with geography. It has nothing to do with proximity, the per- people that are living on our right and our left, in front of us or behind us. Our neighbor is anybody that we come into contact with. And the Lord is showing us how we love our neighbor. And how we love our neighbor is by loving the things that God loves. So because God loves family, we are to honor our father and our mother. Because God values life, we are not to murder senseless slaughtering in our streets. Because God values marriage by his design, a biological man and a biological woman for life, we do not commit adultery. Because God values the the right that you have to own some stuff, we do not steal. And because God values truth, we do not lie against our neighbor. Yet when we come to this 10th commandment, the Lord is really nailing the last nail in the coffin. He, he, he's really showing us that, that long before we do anything, there's something about our attitude that must be held in check. So he says that we're not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. Now, the word covet means a strong desire, a craving. In and of itself, coveting is not bad. In fact, you and I use the word frequently in our language. We say to one another, I covet your prayers. Nothing wrong with that. We have a strong desire to pray for each other. If I come to you and I say, I covet your prayers, I'm asking for you, I'm pleading with you, I desire for you to pray for me. And that's not a bad thing. You come to me and you say, I covet your prayers, and my prayers for you are not a bad thing. No, they are a very good thing. You covet holiness in your life, don't you? You desire it. You have a craving for it. There's nothing wrong with that. You covet Christ, don't you? You you desire the Messiah in your life. You, You desire to make much of Jesus, for Jesus to be the most important person in your life. To covet is not necessarily a a bad thing. But when we come to the 10th commandment, what God is forbidding from us, what God is telling us not to covet, is that we're not supposed to want more of what we have enough of already. When you and I come to the 10th commandment, God is forbidding for us to want more of what we have enough of already. So don't covet your neighbor's stuff. If we put this in our present-day context, what that means is we are not supposed to desire, to crave, to covet a 2022 F4350 Super Cab XLT, even though we have a perfectly fine 2014 pickup truck in the driveway. We are not supposed to covet another pair of shoes, even though we've got a closet full of shoes and we have appropriate shoes for every outfit that we wear. We are not supposed to covet our neighbor's five-bedroom house in that given subdivision when we have a four-bedroom house in our present subdivision and it, and it meets all of our family needs in this very moment. We're not supposed to covet that 
iPhone 13 Pro Max with a 6.7 inch screen with 458 pixels per inch. Even when we have a very suitable iPhone 11 in our pocket that does all the things that we need it to do. So when you come to the 10th commandment, what God is forbidding, he's saying you're not supposed to want more of what you have enough of already. So don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Now in this 17th verse, in this 10th commandment, there are four categories of things that God tells us not to covet. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's house. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's wife. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's servants, maidservant, manservant. And we're not supposed to covet our neighbor's animals, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that he has. Those four categories can be summarized into three smaller categories when we simply understand that the Lord is telling us not to covet places, people, possessions. And if you stop and think about it, for most people, that's the summation of life. Your life is summarized by places and people and possessions. So God is telling us we are not supposed to covet other people, other places, other individuals' possessions. We're not supposed to covet and want more of what we have enough of already. The truth of the matter is that your house was fine until you saw your neighbor's house. Your house, your couch, your lamp, your end table, it was perfectly fine. You were satisfied with what you had until you saw your neighbor's couch and lamp and end table on Pinterest, right? I mean, when you saw it on Pinterest, when you saw it there, you said, I've gotta have that. What I currently have is not suitable any longer. I've gotta have that. You were satisfied with your spouse until you had an argument and you looked at some other marriage and thought they don't ever argue about the stupid stuff that we argue about. And I wish that my wife loved me like she loves her husband or like he loves his wife. And we begin to compare and contrast. And the reality is everybody fights about the same stupid stuff that you guys fight about. And the Bible... The Bible I've found rarely has much to say about marrying the one that we love, but it has a lot to say about loving the one that we marry. So as godly people, we are supposed to love the spouse that God gave us. We are to love her unconditionally. We are to love her with no strings attached. We are to love her with an unending, unmerited kind of love. The kind of love that God has for you is the kind of love that you need to show to your spouse. And then the Lord says, you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's possessions, the, the, the servants or the stuff, the animals. Now, I realize that in that context of Exodus chapter 20, when you see manservant and maidservant, you think to yourself, that, that looks like slavery. It looks like bond service. Um, and, and that kind of hierarchy was set up in that day. But I don't want you to get mad at God because he doesn't blast slavery like you understand it from the American culture and context. What the Lord is telling us is that when you go to work in those work relationships, you are not supposed to covet your neighbor's position in the company or their promotion over you. You're not, to, you're not supposed to covet what they have, the stuff they possess. 
because you are to be satisfied with the stuff that God has given unto you for you to steward well for his good and for his glory. So God comes with his last commandment. It has much to do with attitude before action. It has everything to do with desire before the action or the deed is done. It gets to the heart of the problem because we have a problem with the heart. And here in this moment, the Lord says, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. And i got to be honest with you. This is a hard sell in America. It is hard to tell American Christians don't covet because we live in a land of plenty and there's plenty more that we want. We want more than what we have and so it is so tempting for us to covet, to have a desire, to have a craving, to want more of something that we have enough of already. In 1976, in the average American grocery store, there were 9,000 items on the shelf. And today, even with the bottleneck of the supply chain being convoluted, even today, in the average American grocery store, there are now more than 40,000 items on the shelf. From 9,000 to 40,000. Now, do we need that much more? And some would say, absolutely, we need that much more. Several years ago, a friend of mine who at one time was a missionary with the International Mission Board in Ethiopia. He and his wife and their children were home on furlough. His wife, Jennifer, went to the grocery store just to get a couple of items. The grocery list was short. She was gone for three hours. By the time she got back, her husband, James, said to her, what took you so long? You only went for a couple of items. And she said, James, you won't believe it. I went to the grocery store to find green beans. I found 27 brands of green beans on the shelf. In Ethiopia, we go to the marketplace and we get green beans if that's what we want and if they're available, and we just have one option of green beans. You go to the grocery store now and there are all types of kinds and cuts. There are all types of brands and, and, and types of, 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 of cans of, of green beans. And I was standing there, James, and I was paralyzed. I didn't know. I couldn't move. I didn't know what to do. I was just gripped by all the green beans that were staring at me. When you and I realize that we have so much stuff, it is, it is tempting for us to covet, for us to be greedy, for us to want more of what we have enough of already. The story is told of a husband and wife named John and Roberta. Both John and Roberta, they had uh, good jobs, but Roberta had a more lucrative job than her husband John. John and Roberta, they... Um, bought a new house, not because they needed it, but simply because they wanted it. They went and toured their new 7,000 square foot mansion, and as they were making their way through all of the rooms, Roberta turned to her husband and she said, you know, if it weren't for my money, we would not be in this house. Her husband didn't say anything. Later in the day, uh, the delivery truck arrived and all the furniture came and was properly placed in each and every room. And eventually, Roberta looked at her husband and said, you know, if it wasn't for my money, we wouldn't have all this furniture. This furniture wouldn't be here. Husband didn't say a word. Still later in the day, another delivery truck came with the entertainment center, the television, the surround sound, and all that was put up. And Roberta said to her husband, you know what? If it weren't for my money, this entertainment center would not be here. And eventually, the husband spoke up and said, Roberta, if it wasn't for your money, I wouldn't be here. 
The question was asked to John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And that multi-millionaire simply said, a little bit more. How much money is enough? A little bit more. Can you relate to that? Does that resonate with you? Well, you think to yourself, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be more satisfied. If I just had a little bit more, I could do a few more things. If I just had a little bit more, how much money is really needed? And Rockefeller just simply said, just a little bit more. In his book entitled, When God Whispers Your Name, it was Max Lucado who said, the one thing we are not is satisfied. We are not a satisfied people. We push back, he writes, from the Thanksgiving dinner table. We pat our bellies and we think to ourselves, I could not eat another bite. And about five hours later, we find ourselves back in that same kitchen looking for something else to eat. We're just not satisfied. He said, we have a full night of rest. We wake up the next day and we are rejuvenated. We are reinvigorated. And there's no way that anybody could pay us enough money to get back into bed because we have so many things to do. And check us out 15 hours later. We crawl back into bed because we are exhausted and whipped from the day. We're not satisfied. He said, we go on a vacation. It's a vacation of our dreams, and we enjoy it for the first few days. And then as the vacation comes winding down, we begin to think about and plan for and long for and crave that next vacation, which has to be bigger and better than this vacation that we've currently had. And the satisfaction from this vacation quickly wanes. He went on to write that as children, we say... I wish I were a teenager. And as a teenager, I wish I were an adult. And as an adult, I wish I were married. And as a spouse, I wish I had a child. And as a parent, we say, I wish our children were grown. And as empty nesters, we say, I wish our children would come and visit us. And in the retirement years, Rocking in a rocking chair with aching, cracking bones. We say, I wish I had the energy of a child again. Never quite satisfied, are we? We always have a longing for something more, craving for something more. I think Max Lucado is probably right. One thing we are not, we are not satisfied. At the core of covetousness is a lack of satisfaction. Because we're not satisfied with what God has given us, because we're not satisfied with what we have, then we begin to covet wanting more of what we have enough of already. I've come to this conclusion, that the only cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ. Let me say that again. That the only cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ. Other people, other places, other possessions will not bring contentment in your life. You can chase after it all you want to. 
You can chase after every place that you want to go. You can chase after every position, every promotion, every person that you want. You can chase after every possession that this world can offer. But places and people and possessions will not bring contentment in life. The only cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ. I want to contend this morning that Noah was content in Christ. The Lord told him to build an ark because for 40 days and 40 nights it was going to rain. Water was going to fall from the sky and Noah had never seen raindrops before the flood. And yet, because his contentment was in Christ, he obeyed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found their contentment in Christ. They said to the king of their culture, we will not bow down to the image that you have constructed, for the God that we worship is able to save us from your fiery furnace, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will never bow down and worship this image that you have constructed. And some of you know the story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were bound. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And there in the furnace, a fourth man, one who looked like a son of God, showed up. And they were all dancing around in the furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out. And their hair did not smell like smoke. Nothing on them was singed. And they were protected from the fire because God was with them. And their contentment was in Christ. The psalmist was content in Christ. For the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Peter and John found their contentment in Christ. They said to the beggar, silver and gold we do not have. But what we do have will freely give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. And the one who could not walk now was strengthened and able to walk. It's the apostle named Paul who found his contentment in Christ. In the Philippian correspondence, he writes, I know what it is to be in plenty, and I know what it is to be in want. And I found the secret to being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether having everything or nothing, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The author of the Hebrew letter found his contentment in Christ, for he writes in chapter 13, verse 5, free your life from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God says, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. The hymn writer found contentment in Christ, for the hymn writer said, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. See, contentment in life is not found and bound in any other place, in any person, in any level of possessions. It can only be found in the life, work, and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ. Some of you may remember that when we began this sermon series I may mention in the very first sermon that it is good for us to visit Mount Sinai because when you and I come to Mount Sinai, we are propelled to another mountain, Mount Calvary. And this morning as we wrap up this 10-part sermon series, can I just remind you that it is good for us to visit Mount Sinai 
because Mount Sinai propels us to Mount Calvary. It is on Mount Sinai that God came down. It is on Mount Calvary that God was executed. It is on Mount Sinai that the word was written. It is on Mount Calvary that the word was crucified. It is on Mount Sinai that perfection is demanded. It is on Mount Calvary that perfection is personified. It is on Mount Sinai that love is described. It is on Mount Calvary where love is demonstrated. It is on Mount Sinai where a Savior is needed. It is on Mount Calvary where a Savior is given. It is on Mount Sinai where questions are asked. It is on Mount Calvary where answers are given. It is on Mount Sinai where we ask the question, what can wash away my sin? On Mount Calvary, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, friend, when we come to Mount Sinai, we realize it is not a ladder that gets us to God. It is not as if we climb each commandment as if it's a rung on the ladder because we have failed at every commandment. It's not that we're decent. It's not that we're pretty good. It's not that we just need a few fine tweaks and tunes here and there. No, we are criminals. We are lawbreakers. We are guilty as charged. It's not that we just mess up, mess up on some of the commandments. We're like over 10. We are utter failures. The Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai is not a ladder that gets us to God. No, Mount Sinai serves as a mirror. It reveals our flaws and our failures and our need for a Savior. And Mount Sinai propels us to Mount Calvary. Mount Sinai is a, is a road map along the journey of life. And, and Mount Sinai says, I'm glad you came. I'm glad you came to visit, but this is not a place where you can stay. This is not a place where you can live. This is not a place where you can find healing, hope, and forgiveness. No, this is a place that points to another mountain because there is another mountain, and it's Mount Calvary. And it's there where Jesus suffered and died for all of your mistakes. It's where Jesus, the God-man, Yes, he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem barn. He lived a perfect life. He had a three-year ministry. About the age of 33, he was whipped beyond all human recognition. He was crushed for our sins. And this Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He had a cross strapped to his back. He climbed up a hill, a mountain, Calvary. And there, the Roman soldiers threw him down like a rag doll. They nailed him to a cross. They hoisted him into the air. And for a few hours on that Friday, he who knew no sin became your sin. He who was perfect took on my imperfection. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he died taking the punishment that we deserved. His dead body was taken off the cross, placed into a grave. He was there for three days, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. 
he gives us life eternal. You see, the righteousness that's needed in order to gain entrance into God's kingdom is not based on your ability to keep the Ten Commandments. The righteousness that's needed is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you at the point of faith. At that moment when you declare, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of your salvation, in that moment, his innocence, his righteousness, his holiness is regarded as belonging to us. And in that moment, God sees us as worthy of entering his kingdom. You see, I can't keep any of these Ten Commandments. Not fully, not forever, and you can't either. Our only hope is in the one who did keep them perfectly forever, and his name is Jesus. So we come to the end of these Ten Commandments, and these commandments point us to Christ, because that's who we need more than anything else. Our contentment in life is not found in more places or more people or more possessions. Our contentment can only be found in Christ. It was John Piper who said, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Let me say that again. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. This morning I ask you, have you found your contentment in Christ? If you're listening to my voice and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today can be the day that perfection is regarded as belonging to you. Today can be the day when you acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And that you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Today can be the day we're going to sing a song. Pastors are going to be standing right here. Ministers of the gospel are going to be here to receive you. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, I encourage you to come. But I dare say that I'm looking at quite a few Christians. And let me ask you, believer, is your contentment found and bound in Christ? Or do you find yourself looking at your neighbor, whoever your neighbor may be, and you think to yourself that in your heart, I want something more that I have enough of already. Where is your contentment found? It's not in stuff. It's not in people. It's not in places. It's not in things. It's not in promotions. It's not in possessions. No, your contentment can only be found in Christ, in Christ alone. So maybe, believer, today, you just need to come and kneel at the altar and pray. And say, God, please, um, help my heart problem. Help my attitude. Help my desires. Let them glorify you. Maybe you're here today. And you have never joined this church, but this is the place where God wants you to be. Whatever God's leading you to do, I encourage you to do it today. The only cure for covetousness is contentment in Christ it is Christ and Christ alone that fulfills these commandments for us, that fulfills these commandments in us. To God be the glory.
Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. Lord, we pray that what was spoken today will be lodged deeply in our hearts, that you will be honored and glorified. If there's somebody here who's trying to trust in their works for their salvation, Lord, today I pray you break through. I pray that you seek and to save the lost. Father, for those of us who just need to come and pray and ask for your help and healing, let that happen today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.